Matthew 1, 1 through 6. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amenadab, Amenadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Very good. Dear Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that we can be here this morning, and we realize what the season is about. It's about you. We pray that you would anoint John's words this morning, that people will not only be comforted, but they will even be convicted, Lord, and know that we can, we can come to you and make things right. Lord, we pray for all the people that are in this congregation from wherever they've come from, that you will bless them. And we give you all the praise, Father, in your name, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. That's my dad. Well, my parents are here. My uh, other part of my family, my in-laws are all here. Um, I have done a lot of stupid things in my life. Uh, Because they are all here, I'm going to share a selection of those that I've been pre-approved by my family uh, because I don't want to totally embarrass myself. Most of the stupid things I have done in my life, I have done with uh, this man pictured here. Does anybody know who this man is? That's Mimo Morielli. Uh, Michelangelo Morielli, one of my childhood best friends, who I just pulled this picture off Mimo's Facebook. I don't know why he has a sock puppet wrapped up in his scarf, but it's perfectly fitting who Mimo is. We've been friends for a really long time, and honestly, every stupid thing I've done in life nearly has been with Mimo. A couple examples. One of those, uh, in, uh, in 2002, Mimo and I uh, were, were hanging out. He spent the night at my house on a Saturday night, and we went to church together. And, uh, and I, we woke up a little bit late, and so we, rode, we drove separately from my parents. And I had a 1989 Chevy Scottsdale single cab pickup. It was awesome. It was a stick shift. And uh, Mimo and I were running a bit late, and we get dressed, we get in the truck, and uh, we're driving down 91st Street in West Tulsa, and I look down at my fingernails and realize my fingernails are kind of long, and you know, we dress up in church, so I need to clip my fingernails, so I decide right now is a great time to do that. So I turn to Mimo, who has the worst driving record of any human being I've ever met, and I say, hey... I've got a good idea. Why don't you take the wheel while I shift and do the brake and the gas and clip my fingernails? And he said, great idea. Uh, By the way, Mimo totaled a car before he turned 16. He's totaled like so many cars. I don't know why it felt like a good idea, but it sure did at the time. And uh, so we're going down 91st Street there, mailboxes lining either side of the street. 
Not a problem. We're 16 years old. Mimo's got his hands on the wheel for not longer than five seconds, and we slam into a mailbox at 40 miles an hour. And evidently, the people had not checked their mail. It was a Sunday morning. It was a beautiful moment where the mail all comes up on the windshield, and I pull into this church parking lot, and I get out, and I start punching the car, and Nemo's just laughing at me on the inside of the cab. It's just like, don't talk to me. Emily and I were actually dating at the time. I forgot about this. I called my dad and said my hand slipped. And... <laughs> Uh, that night, Emily and I were together at Nordagio's, which certainly dates this story, and uh, I was feeling really guilty, and I said, I think I need to go home and tell the truth. That was Mimo. Another Mimo story, we uh, went on a trip with our youth group to Dallas to go to Six Flags and uh, have some fun. We also went to uh, a Rangers, uh, Texas Rangers game, and uh, we went with our youth group. For some reason, we had a life-size Jessica Simpson cutout with us. I don't know really why. Uh, <laughs> But yada, 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 by the end of the game, we were escorted by a handful of security guards to the gates and told that we were formally banned for life from the ballpark at Arlington. And, I'm, and this is a true story, 100% true. I can't tell you why we're banned for life, but uh, I can't go back, and I just can never show my face. It's true. It really is true. I love, play, I love telling that story in Two Truths and a Lie, because it's true. It did something totally safe. You don't have to be ashamed or wonder. But I did a lot of stupid stuff with that guy, and I texted him this morning, and he was bringing all kinds of recommendations for stories that I could tell. But uh, uh, you've done stupid stuff, too. In fact, let's have a bonding moment and just pass the mic around and <laughs> see who did the dumbest stuff. And I think, I think uh, that'd be a lot of fun. But sometimes we do stuff that's dumb, and it's, and it's relatively harmless. You just have to pay for some new you know, uh, headlights and things like that. And sometimes you do stuff that's, that's more than dumb. It's destructive. It, it hurts Yourself, it hurts other people. It's emotionally harmful, physically harmful. Sometimes it's way worse. We do stuff that leaves people uh, wounded and limping. And, and uh, for the last couple of weeks, as we've been telling the story of this genealogy that we've just read, we've seen examples of that kind of story. And by the way, if you haven't been here the last four weeks, you probably listened to what we just read and thought, boy, this is going to be a stimulating sermon with all of those names. But as we've been reading, we found there's some really cool stuff hidden in this genealogy that it's the, at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. We told the story of Tamar, who was the daughter-in-law of Judah, part of Abraham's family. And uh, Tamar is a horrible situation. Uh, long story short, dressed up as a prostitute to get her father-in-law to impregnate her. Totally normal biblical story. And, uh, and we see why Judah's family line mattered so much, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But a, a twisted story, Tamar, the first woman mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. The second woman mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus is this woman named Rahab, who is a non-Jewish prostitute living in the city of Jericho. And uh, she had heard of all that the God of Israel did in leading the Israelites out of Egypt. And they knew that they were coming toward Jericho, and the people were, were very nervous and quaking in their boots. And Rahab is a, is, a, is a smart girl thinking on her feet, and she protects these Israelite spies who are coming in and say, Look, I'll give you safe lodging and throw the bad guys off your trail, but you just protect me and my family when you come in and conquer. And, and they made good on their word. Rahab lived among the Israelites for generations to come. And though she was a prostitute, and though her line should have been very forgettable, uh, we see in the genealogy of Jesus, this woman Rahab, her name attached to a man named Salmon. And together uh, they had a son whose name was Boaz, 
who figures prominently in the, the story of the third woman in the genealogy of Jesus, which is a woman named Ruth. Ruth was from Moab and uh, married uh, the son, or married a, a man who, who passed away. And her brother-in-law passed away, and her father-in-law passed away. And so Ruth, this Moabite woman, finds herself destitute uh, with her, her mother-in-law, whose name was Naomi. And God arranges this divinely orchestrated moment, leads him to this man named Boaz, who becomes the kinsman redeemer for the family. There's some cool historical kind of context there. You can go back and listen there. But Boaz and Ruth become a family against all odds, and this family line continues. Together they have a son named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse, and Jesse has a son named David. And we realize that this story has been a prequel, that uh, with Tamar and with Rahab and with Ruth, God has been, has been weaving a narrative. And in spite of the evil and the, the failure and the tragedy that strikes this family, God's plans are slowly and faithfully marching ahead. And all of it leads us to this guy, David, uh, and, and he shows up in the narrative. Now, David, uh, we, we talked about him in the last verse that we read together. But we can pick up some of the foreboding nature of his story by the way that he and, and the mother of his child are identified. This is verse 6 that we just read. David was the father of Solomon, whom perhaps you've heard of, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And we see that there's, there's, something, there's something afoot here in David's narrative. So with each of these names, it's kind of taken us back to a story in the Old Testament. And so if you'd like to follow along, this is, comes from 2 Samuel chapter 11, 2 Samuel chapter 11. We'll read this uh, sometime, I think, in April of next year, uh, the whole story. But uh, let me give you some back, background on David. David uh, is, is a really important character in, in the biblical narrative. Uh, and if you've listened to the signs so far, all signs have been pointing toward a king from the line of Judah. God had, uh, through Jacob, spoke prophetically over Judah and said, there's going to be a king, a line of kings from your family, and one king will come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. So it sets up these expectations of a king in the line of Judah. We read the story of Ruth, and we realize it's a prequel to David, and think, okay, this guy's a big deal. What's he going to be like when he gets here? David is this remarkable character. Uh, he's a humble guy. He's, got, uh, he's like the last in line, the, the runt of the litter, but he seems to have this great heart for God. Uh, the prophet Samuel goes to, to his dad's house and says, show me all your boys, because God says one of your kids is supposed to be king after Saul. He brings out the tallest one, the best looking one. He says, nope, brings out the nest, nope, 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 nope. And he goes down through all the family line of the likely candidates of people who will be king after Saul. And he says, well, we do have this one, David. He's, he's out with the sheep, but you don't want to see him. And Samuel, the prophet, calls him up and there on the spot anoints him that he'll be king over Judah. David is this awesome guy. He becomes a, a military leader. He's fiery. He's got a heart for God. And there's a story in 1 Samuel 17 where uh, Jesse, David's dad, sends him to go check on his brothers who are in battle against this, this group called the Philistines who lived uh, in southwestern Palestine along the Mediterranean. And they had a giant for, a, for a, a, a military leader named Goliath. And every day Goliath had been taunting the armies of Israel. And David's seen his brothers just delivering some bread and cheese, and he hears the deal about Goliath, and he says, well, I'll take him on. 
And in this great, like, William Wallace-esque scene, David goes out, this scrawny little guy standing before the monstrosity of Goliath, and he's got this great speech. He says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. And this day I'll give the carcasses of your army to the birds and the animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And the people were like, dang, that was good. <laughs> he gets out his, his sling, and he knocks him down, cuts off his head, and, and, and it really starts David's military career, his political career. Uh, he, was, he was a great military leader. The people started singing songs about David. David's killed his, his ten, Saul has killed his thousands, but David is tens of thousands, and his reputation grows. Saul, the king, gets envious of David and tries to kill him, speaks all kinds of evil against him, but David is deferential towards Saul because he was anointed by God to lead Israel, even though he's a wicked dude. And he, he won't speak a word against him. He won't lay a hand on him to harm him. And you think, this guy is just fantastic. In the long run, he becomes king. And he unites the, the, the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, and makes it a unified nation under his monarchy. And, and uh, he's, he's driven out their enemies. And one day, he's sitting in his palace. And he's gotten a lot done. And he says, God, here I am sitting in this palace, this house I've made for, you, for myself, while the ark of God, representing God's presence among the people, is sitting in a tent. What am I doing here? He says, I'm going to build a house for you, God. And through the prophet, God's got this beautiful thing that he says to, to David, seeing his, gener his generous spirit. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I'll establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. David says to God, God, I'm going to build a house for you. And God says, no, 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 I'm going to build a house for you. And he makes a covenant with David, an everlasting covenant, that there would always be someone from David's line on the throne. And as we're reading the story so far, we just get this sense, man, like God's blessing is on this guy. The favor of God is, is on this guy's life. He's like Midas. Everything he touches turns to gold. He does everything right. And then we get to 2 Samuel chapter 11, where David is, is resting on his laurels. He's driven out his enemies, and, and this is what the text has to say is at the beginning of chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. At the time when the kings go to war, David should have been elsewhere. He lingered and he remained uh, in the city. And because he's got all kinds of time on his hands, he decides to go out and sit on the patio and enjoy the view. And he just so happens to see a woman on the rooftop of her house who's bathing. And uh, we don't get any, it doesn't appear to be the case in the text that she was like being exhibitionist. Nothing like that. It's not like she, she was trying to draw attention. In fact, the text tells us that she had just finished her period and she was uh, taking a bath to cleanse herself so she'd be ceremonially clean. Uh, most people didn't live in skyscrapers, so she was going to a place where she'd have privacy to bathe, which, which would have been the rooftop. 
Scripture tells us that the woman was named Bathsheba, that she was very beautiful, that she was the wife of a man named Uriah, who was one of David's like mighty men, one of his go-to warriors who he'd fought a lot of battles with. And uh, David is, is, has a choice with what he's seen. He's in a position of power seated in, in his house. And this often happens with people in power, that you're given a unique uh, vantage point into the vulnerability of other people. If you're a boss, if you are the HR person for your office, if you have a power relationship with anybody else, uh, we often have uh, the privilege and the responsibility of having a, a view into people at their most vulnerable. And as we talked about in the month of October, the purpose of power, that God entrusts us with power so, that we can, so it can lead to the flourishing of others. To whatever degree you've been entrusted with power, that power is for you to use so that other people can flourish. And so here's David. What's he going to do with the power and the opportunity that he's been given? Is he going to send down folks and let them know, hey, Bathsheba, everybody can see you? Uh, or, hey, you might want to get a blind or a curtain or something. Uh, what's he going to do? And the text seems to, like, go down to slow motion, and, and it tells us what David does. David sent for her, and he slept with her. And you think, uh, in the ancient Near East, how is a woman like Bathsheba going to say no to David? And how is Bathsheba going to say no to the king? And how is she going to say no to her husband's boss? We're given no sense that this was mutually desired or, or consensual. David sent for her, and he slept with her. And the only thing that Bathsheba says in this story is, I'm pregnant. Those are her only words, a very passive role in this text. And all of this leads to a massive cover-up by David, who until this point has done so many things right he was passive and delegating his leadership and not going to war, which put him in a position where he was tempted. That temptation led him to make a choice that was destructive, which led him to make another choice that was destructive that led to consequences, which made him uh, get in a position where he had to lie to cover up the stupid stuff he'd done. So he's like, what am I going to do? I got her pregnant. What am I going to do? So he sends for Uriah, come on back. You need a quick respite. You've been fighting so hard. Come up to the king's house. You deserve a good meal. In fact, have a couple drinks on me. And so he gets Uriah good and drunk. And then he says, you know what? You deserve to go home and sleep in your own bed, hoping that he'll go home and sleep with his wife. Uh, Uriah is an honorable man. He stays and he eats at the table of the king. But when he's sent back to his wife, uh, he sleeps in a tent outside and says, if my battle buddies are still out fighting, what business do I have to go sleep with my wife? David's like, dang it. So he said, let's do it again. And so he calls him up, have dinner with me again. You've been working hard. Have some drinks on me. In fact, one more this time. And he sends Uriah back. You should, you know, go see your wife. And uh, again, Uriah, who's a man of character, uh, refuses to go in and sleep with his wife because his battle buddies are all out on the front lines. We discover that Uriah's name means the light of God or the fire of God. And so David, seeing the character of this guy and knowing it, the consequences of what's going to happen, decides to extinguish the light and the fire of God from his life. When Uriah goes back uh, to the front lines, uh, David sends a letter with him, and he gives it to the commander of the army and says, send Uriah to the place where the fighting is the most intense. When it gets real bad, everyone else just take a big step backward. And this is what happened. And Uriah was killed. 
David made this choice to snuff out the light and the fire of God, this man Uriah, but in doing so, he also snuffs out the light and the fire of God from his life and faces tremendous consequences and falls out. In 2009, uh, there was a senator, John Ensign from Nevada, who uh, had an affair and then had this big cover-up effort, and things went really public, and it was a mess, and he had to publicly resign. And before he left uh, Capitol Hill, he was given the opportunity to speak to his colleagues in the Senate, and, uh, and he had a word of contrition and a word of warning to them. This is what Ensign said. This came from the Harvard Business Review, so that you'll think more highly of me. Harvard, there you go. Ensign said, when one takes a position of leadership, there is a very real danger of getting caught in the hype surrounding that status. So surround yourselves with people who will be honest with you about how you really are and what you're becoming, and then make them promise to not hold back from telling you the truth. David, luckily, has people like this in his life. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan the prophet comes to him. He's got a hard word for him. He says, David, there's a guy in your kingdom, really rich. He's got a huge flock of sheep, more than he can count. And there's also this poor guy in your kingdom who's just got the one ewe lamb, but man, he loves it, loves it like it's like a child. And so the rich guy was having some friends over and decided to slaughter a lamb to provide a meal. And do you know what the rich guy did? He went and he took the lamb from the poor man and he slaughtered that and used that for the feast instead. And David is just enraged and incensed by what this rich man has done. And he says, you bring him here. I'm going to talk to him. We're going to kill him right now. And Nathan said, you're the man. You're the one who did this. And David, struck to the core, is ashamed of himself and guilty. And there in the presence of Nathan the prophet repents. And he is brokenhearted over what he's done. In fact, Psalm 51 in our Bibles, is David's prayer, his, 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 his prayer of repentance after what he did became public and known and Nathan confronted him. This is what David said in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. He's got a really guilty conscience. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You are God my Savior and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Even in moral failure, David, I mean, he's such a dummy. He exemplifies true repentance, true contrition in the face of what he's done. He doesn't cover it up once it's been, he doesn't try to live a lie or justify it. She was just so beautiful. He, he confesses to what he's done and he's contrite about it. Now, what's interesting about the story so far is that we've said almost nothing about Bathsheba. Uh, and in fact, you compare her story to Tamar or Rahab or Ruth, all of those women had very active roles in the story. But Bathsheba, even in the Matthew text, is not identified by her own name. She's a possessive. She was Uriah's wife. What on earth is going on with Bathsheba? 
She endured effectively rape by the king. Her, her husband is murdered. She loses the child that she has uh, with David. She became pregnant through their affair. Um, and, and for those of us who've been victimized in the church, and there are lots of people who've one way or another experienced some kind of sexual abuse or emotional abuse, it would be really helpful to see how she had dealt with it. Uh, to get just a window into the world of like the conversations that she had with God. How did she pick up the pieces? What did it look like for her to move on? And unfortunately, we don't have any of those details. We know very little about her. But the next time that we see Bathsheba, we see that her story has developed and changed. And over the course of time, David is deposed as king, and, and her son Solomon, the second child that she has with David, becomes king in his place. And there's this great detail in 1 Kings chapter 2 uh, of how Bathsheba is reintroduced in the narrative. When Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah, the king stood up to meet her, bowed down to her, and sat down on his throne. He had a throne brought for the king's mother, and she sat down at his right hand. Bathsheba here is presented not as Uriah's wife, not as David's wife or David's concubine, not firstly as Solomon's mother, but she's introduced by her own name. She's Bathsheba. The king honors her, and in her presence, the king stands. The king bows before her, and the king says, bring out another throne so my mom can be at my right hand. In the context of the story, she's presented as an advocate and an advisor to the king, a woman who plays a significant role in the reign of her son, Solomon. So we've got these four women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, all women in, in very precarious and dangerous and unfortunate uh, situations. Tamar and Bathsheba, who were the victims of evil and passive men, men who definitely should have known better. Rahab, a woman with a sketchy past who should have been deeply forgettable. And Ruth, a woman who's, who's just a victim of tragedy. And it's so amazing to me and beautiful to me that their stories have been preserved and bookmarked at the beginning of the New Testament so that we'd see them. Because in each case, with each of these women, God saw them. He noticed them. He loved them. He knew their story and, and chose to rewrite their narrative to include their story in his story and make it into something beautiful and redemptive. God honored their courage and their resourcefulness and their loyalty, and he included them in their story, in his story, rewriting their narrative from victims of happenstance you know, to matriarchs of the Messiah, to queens in the line of the King of Kings. And a handful of you sent me this article that Ann Voskamp uh, posted with this uh, piece of art. These four women who, who were disgraced and who were abandoned, who were left over, become, with their inclusion in the genealogy of Jesus, like queens, uh, forebears of the Messiah, Tamar, who had been rejected and destitute. Rahab, who was, who was a non-Jew and, 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 and brushed aside because of her behavior. Ruth, who was left behind through death. And now Bathsheba, who was, who was a victim of rape. All of these women were honored and included in the story of Jesus. And it's so funny to me. Maybe you've tried to read through the Bible before and you get to the New Testament and Matthew 1 is like, boring. It's so amazing, Matthew made the deliberate choice to start his gospel in this way. 
And Matthew made another deliberate choice to include these four women because there was something in these four women's narrative that we needed to hear, that we needed to notice to set us up for the coming of Jesus. And what we find at the start of this book, the the gospel of Jesus Christ, is a genealogy that's held up before us like a mirror. And in the the stories of of these women and of these men, we're supposed to find ourselves and see ourselves in it. We see ourselves in the faith and the failure. And we see ourselves in the sin and the struggle and the victories and the victimhood of the matriarchs and the patriarchs of the faith. We see ourselves in the story. And all of it draws our attention to Jesus, the heir of this scarlet thread, this family bloodline that's been going from when God first blessed Abraham and said, I'm going to make a nation out of you. All of it draws our attention to Jesus, the heir of this family story, and it makes us think Jesus can save people like us because Jesus came from people like us. Man, if somebody as jacked up as Judah can be in God's story, if somebody as violent as David can be a part of God's family, if somebody who's suffered like Tamar or Bathsheba or, 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 or Ruth can be a part of God's story, then maybe I can be a part of his story too. There was, there's a pastor at Asbury named Charlie Reiser. Charlie's the man. And uh, he's, just, he's just retiring. And uh, Charlie is, uh, was kind of a mentor to me, taught me how to do hospital visits. I'll tell those stories sometime. Those are, I've done some horrible hospital visits. And... Uh, but one night, there's this ministry at Asbury called Celebrate Recovery, which is like a, 12, a Christian 12-step. And uh, they were celebrating an anniversary for how long CR had been meeting, and so all of the pastors went. And um, I remember talking with this guy who'd been really involved in CR for a while, and he said, yeah, it's so great to have all the pastors here. I mean, there's Todd and John and Tom. And I said, well, what about Charlie? He said, ah, Charlie's here every week. He's one of us. And I thought that was the biggest compliment. In fact, I need to write Charlie this in a letter. That was one of the most like Jesus-like things I've heard someone say about a pastor. Man, he's like us. He's one of us. And it reminds me of what Isaiah said that the Messiah would be like. He said, the virgin will give birth to a son and he'll be called Emmanuel, the God who's one of us. He can save people like us because he came from people like us. There are a lot of stories in this room. You know, I'm convinced, like, even when life is really good, life is hard. And if tragedy hasn't come to you yet, in all likelihood, like, you will. You will suffer in this life because of the choices that you make, because of the choices of others, because, you know, like Ruth, tragedy strikes. We all have to make sense of our own story. And what's so beautiful to me is the hospitality of God shown to us in Jesus here who named us (laughs) who named people just like us. So as this Messiah, Jesus, is coming and we're wondering, what on earth is he going to be like? We see that he's already got a place in his heart for folks who are like us, folks who are just broken and, and, and destroyed and fallen to pieces on the inside like us. And so I don't know your story. I, you know, this is a complicated way, a meandering way of getting to uh, the really simple message that God loves you. God really wants you to be part of his family. God has been working really, really hard for thousands of years to graft you in, to tell stories of hospitality of people who screwed up to pave the way for you to think, well, if he can save them, maybe he can save me. And I want to tell you this Christmas, God really loves you. 
He knows just how bad things have been and, and things may get. And he wants to be the God who's one of us, who's walking with you through the middle of this tragedy. So they call him Emmanuel, the God who's with us. And so maybe today, this would be just a great day for you to look back and say thanks to God for all the ways that he's been present with you through suffering. You would never choose this path. But you could look back and say, God has been there, right there with me, even through grief and tragedy and destruction and sin and loss. And maybe this morning you're walking through things where you just need to know the presence of Jesus Christ. And maybe today you would ask for him. I believe God is deeply respectful of human will. And if you want him to walk with you, he'd be delighted to. And so maybe you would say today, uh, if you'd save them, maybe you'll save me. Would you be Emmanuel? Would you be God, not with us, but God with me right now? And I'm confident that he will be delighted to. God loves you. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your, your patient love. Thank you for your steady and your deliberate love. My goodness, you could have done this so more quickly. Uh, you, could have, you could have done this more efficiently, but, but there was a reason you wanted to include Tamar in the story and Rahab and Ruth. You wanted to include Bathsheba. All of these characters in the story, they had no idea how they fit into the big picture. But now in the view of history, we can see that you've been weaving this beautiful tapestry of redemption. And so if you were faithful to them, we can be confident that you'll be faithful to us. And we see forever what you've done for us at the crux of history in fulfillment of all of your promises to Israel and as a gesture of grand love for us. We see what you've done for us in Jesus. God demonstrates his love. He proves his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. We were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. It's by grace you have been saved. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your grace. I pray for the people in this room uh, who, who are walking with you and maybe with a limp and need to be reminded today just how far you've brought them, how faithful you've been. I pray today as, you receive, as they receive communion that you just give them the gift of your spirit and remind them, hey, remember when I got you through this, and may the response be worship and thanks. And Lord Jesus, for the people in here who may be like a David, who have a guilty conscience because of the things they've done, who come in here on a Sunday morning hoping no one asks or hoping the sermon topic doesn't get close to that destructive thing they did, I pray that you give them the grace today to, to repent and to change. Thank you that your word promises us that if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us. If you have a guilty conscience, you can be purified through Jesus Christ and faith in him. And for those of us in this room who are like Bathshebas, who are victims of the things that other people have done, the choices that other people have made, or maybe just the, the victims of tragedy in life, Pray, Lord Jesus, that you give them the hope that you're working in everything for good. You do not cause the suffering that we experience, but even in our suffering, you are working for good. I pray that those, for those with a guilty conscience and for those who feel stained by the choices of others, feel forever uh, handicapped because of what has happened to them, that you give them optimism in your grace, that, that you who began a good work in us will complete it, and that's where we put our hope. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your story. 
And as we celebrate your coming, we look forward to when you return and our faith is made sight. When you wipe away every tear from our eyes, you remake the heavens and the earth, and we forever see you face to face. And we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.